Welcome everybody to the Diecast Movie Podcast. For this episode, we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, Dad. Hello, everybody. This is Steve. I hope everybody's having a good summer so far. Um, we're going to be moving into the Richard Stanley interview in just a minute. I just want to tell everybody thank you for listening to the show and for the feedback we've been getting. We're going to have an episode coming up soon where I'll share some of the feedback that we've been getting on the show, either by email or on Facebook. I'm not doing it on this episode because it's rather a lengthy one because it's two interviews combined together that I did with Richard Stanley. So it'll be the first one, and then um, which was done about a year and a half ago, and then there will be an intermission, and then it'll go into the second part of the interview, um, which is about 45 minutes long, which was done more recently. All right, hope everybody has a good time with it, and thanks for listening. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. This is Steve Turek talking to you, and I'm going to be interviewing Richard Stanley, the director of Hardwire, Death Devil, and the Color of Space. Color Out of Space. I keep wanting to say the Color of Money for some reason because it's like so many different movies of color, but it's the Color Out of Space. How are you doing today, Mr. Stanley? I'm good, sir. I'm enjoying the early spring sunshine here in the French Pyrenees. I'm delighted to be speaking to you. I'm delighted to be speaking to you too. And um, just before we get started with your um, background and, and the movies, when you were actually it's kind of a little bit of your background, I guess you can say, when you were growing up, what were some of the films, the cinema that influenced you to become the director that you are or things that are just interest you to begin with? Well, uh, undeniably, I'd have to point to um, the original King Kong. Um, the original Kong was the first movie I ever saw. Um, growing up in um, Southern Africa in the late 1960s and the early 70s, there was no television. Um, the first moving image I saw was when my father brought home a 60 millimeter projector when I was four years old and projected the print of King Kong against the uh, the wall of the room, which um, basically um, changed my life in a, a single stroke. Uh, I, I think after all these years, the original Kong may still be my favorite movie of all time. Um, for me, Kong on the Empire State is an image more powerful personally than, um, than, than Christ of the crucifixion. When I see Christ on the cross, I, I, I'm not moved in the same way that when I see Kong going towards the Empire State Building, I cry still all these years later. Uh, the, a, a stronger image of, um, of primordial nature at odds with um, technological civilization and I, I cannot imagine. Uh, I was deeply moved, even as a kid. Obviously, I blub every single time um, Kong dies. And, um, but I was also very taken by Carl Denham. Uh, his um, desire to go to places where no one had ever been before and to bring back something no one had ever seen before in their lives. And um, he also has gas grenades with him, which I thought was very practical as a kid. Uh, so um, I think from an early age, I imprinted onto Denham uh, and um, wanted a, um, a similar career or life. And um, Kong pushed me down a certain avenue. So I would imagine my second favorite movie as a kid was um, Golden Voyage of Sinbad, the um, Harryhausen film, which I had the, the good fortune of seeing on its first release, and, um, which also utterly seduced me. Uh, and I very rapidly became one of those creepy 10-year-olds who were spending a lot of time building um, lost cities and miniature jungles on their tabletops and experimenting with plasticine stop motion and glass paintings and got my hands on a Super 8 camera and started um, mucking around in much the same arena as yeah, Harry Hausen and Willis O'Brien, who are my first great heroes. 
I always love the stop motion with um, Willis O'Brien with the Kong, where I know it was from their fingers or whatever with the hair making it move the way it did. But every time I've always watched the, the 1933 King Kong, I'm always thinking that that was such a happy accident because it made it seem to me more lifelike the way his hair was moving from frame to frame, you know, as they were going through it. And and from, like I said, from my understanding, it was by sheer happenstance that that happened. Yeah, there's something truly miraculous about those early stop motion films, which I guess as a child, like seeing anything come to life in front of you, the, uh, I think it's also right there in Golden Voyage when the sorcerer brings the homunculus to life, which just um, uh, had me absolutely wide-eyed as a kid. Uh, maybe there's just so much love put into every single frame the, those um, crazy animated creatures seem, you know, so much more full of um, of soul and life than um, than many of our VFX creations. Maybe it's because the animators studied um, real animals and animal motion so so carefully. But it's also because they're kind of in, imbued with so, with so much emotion. Um, the original Kong is um, full of um, rage and horror as well as um, love and confusion. Uh, I, I, I'm personally a uh, really, really fond of the fact that the original Kong um, chows down on some of the hapless um, people watching or steps on some of the people in the theater and smashes the Fifth Avenue elevated railway line and causes all this death and suffering. In the Peter Jackson version, where he just went ice skating, I, I, it somehow didn't um, grip my heart with the same, the, the same horror and ferocity as the original or even Kong picking up the wrong girl and then dropping her because she's not Fei Ray. There's just so many moments in the original that uh, are burned into my brain forever. Oh, I know. I, I think the original was just, and it was a tight, what, 90-minute movie, and Peter Jackson spent twice as long, and yet wasn't able to get that same message across. And, you, I mean, obviously he really loved the movie, the original also, and he was trying to do a nice tribute to it, but it's still, I think, the original King Kong holds up very well. And I think when youngsters watch it today, whether it's Ray Harryhausen with the golden voyages, Sinbad, they're, they're still captivated, even though they're not CGI. It's because as you said, these, these characters, these are brought to life by these animators in such a way showing their craft. And I think because it's a fantasy thing, don't regardless of what generation it is, they all just roll with it. And they're not saying, Oh, those are cheap special effects. They realize that's a loving craft of artistic merit that really still holds up. Yeah, I totally think so. I think it's one of the greatest things that ever happened. Uh, I'm, I'm absolutely amazed by uh, Marion C. Cooper, the uh, the director who um, started out as a barnstorming biplane pilot, um, worked his way from barnstorming into World War One, and then as a decorated war hero from uh, World War One, and started uh, experimenting with documentary stuff by putting um, cameras on the biplane wings and then graduated into documentaries with grass and then Chang about the elephant and then thought, let's do one about a gorilla and then rapidly realized they couldn't use a real gorilla. Uh, instead, um, segued from almost being documentary filmmakers into creating something which is complete artifice, um, uh, something which where, where all the birds, the foliage, everything is is is, is man-made, and they, it, it's just such an incredible leap. And then they um, they cast themselves as the biplane pilots. Uh, he literally shoots down his own creation of the Empire State. I, I, I still can't believe the sheer balls of it. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> Mayo C. Cooper had such an interesting life um, going, you know, going through all those different things. It's just, it's just, again, it's a, it's like a, a person who's making a movie who's literally living in a sense in his own movie and doesn't know it. Yeah. So he, he was a major inspiration. I mean, it's certainly, um, uh, I would, I would, I would cite Coop as a, a major role model. Well, you, you can't get you can't get a, you can't get one of the better role models than that. I mean, because it, it, I think especially back then when filmmaking was so new, I recently did a review of 1927's Napoleon, and um, with with um, Ebel Gantz and how he was just going and doing stuff that nobody had done before because nobody had. I mean, and he was just and people might have been saying to him which I'm sure they were saying to Cooper, oh, th- th- we can't do it this way. And it's like, we're going to do it. You know, we're going to try. We're going to find a way. And sometimes it doesn't work. But when it does work, you're left breathtaking with what you're able to see. And that's the the, the things that I think are sometimes missing is the, the the mavericks that are saying, we don't need to always do it this way. Let's try something different and see what can see what happens. Well, that's, of course, why we need mavericks and um, where corporate culture fails um the visual medium is an art form as it tends to fall into um, doing things which are like two other movies or taking a tested path and it becomes that much harder to actually break the mold and do something um, truly new or truly unique and um, go in the direction that no one's ever gone before. So um, I'm always delighted when I see people who are taking the medium and running with it in, uh, in a completely surprising direction, even if it doesn't always work. I'm certainly there to um, applaud the, the even the failures when it happens. Yeah, because if you don't give the effort, and then even if it doesn't work for them, another filmmaker might see what they're attempting and say, oh, they had, they're on to something. I think I'm going to try it, but I'm going to see if I can do it and make it work. And that way, and you never know, it might be that second or third generation filmmaker. That's all that first attempt and be like, and they are the ones to make it pay off, but you still have to give credit to the ones that laid the groundwork by even coming up with the concept or the idea. And then other people take it and I don't know what to say, perfect it, but get it to work in a, in a format for film. Yeah, completely. I mean, that's essentially how um, civilization is, I guess, supposed to work. Uh, um, (laughs) I I, I have to hope that um, the stuff we're doing now is going to have a a similar um, influence on on the kids who are are growing up now. And I I have to hope that there's going to be um, people who are who are right at the beginning of their lives are are going to accidentally be exposed to um, films like Color Out of Space and think, well, that's kind of okay, but I, 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 I can improve on that. Um, I recall um, when Hardware came out, uh, Hardware had an X rating initially in the United States, of course, um, uh, which it didn't really deserve. It's not an X-rated movie, really, but it, it had a very a very strong age restriction on it. And somehow my um, kid nephew, who was only about um, nine at the time, managed to see the movie, which um, completely shocked me. Uh, when I asked Betty, okay, well, what do you think? He said, well... Um, I thought it was better than Hunt for Red October, but I didn't like it as much as Predator. <laughs> <laughs> I think put it in context pretty good. <laughs> so it's my sincere hope that the next generation will improve on the stuff that we've done and um, learn from our mistakes and um, make better movies. 
But you, yeah, you got to say he puts you in good company. He says he likes you better than a Sean Connery film, but but he's but he basically said Arnold beat you. You know, I mean, you know, at his age, no, that that, the, uh, that would be appropriate. <laughs> yeah, well, he certainly wasn't the response I was expecting. I was expecting to be traumatized by the violence and the, the bad language, but that, he was fine with that. Well, it also depends what he had seen prior to that, and how, and how he was brought up, you know, if, if, if that would have probably been his first film experience, it might've been a different reaction, but it sounds like he was watching things uh, of different quality of different types of genres. And, and that helped him get more of an idea of what this is. And also knowing that it's cinema, knowing that it's fiction, it's, it's make believe probably goes a long way, you know, where not everybody understands yeah. that difference. Oh, sadly, given the amount of internet access that everyone has these days, it's, um, the next generation are um, far ahead of where I was when I was growing up with no TV in terms of the amount of um, culture and material from both ends of the spectrum that kids are exposed to. So, um, yeah, I think they've probably got um, better critical faculties um, at an early age than um, they might have in my time. Well, you and I are, are just a couple of years apart, so it's. Um, that's, I think we're we're pretty similar. Obviously, I I did have a TV, but you know, growing up, but I think we we were exposed to films of an older generation or generations, and learned that and learned how to handle that and deal with it in a different ways. And I think that exposure when you're getting it at a young age um, helps you develop when you go to see films. You know, nowadays I think, sadly, sometimes when you have an eight or nine year old, the the things that they're showing them on TV and the movies, they're like, "Oh, we have to." It's for an eight year old. We have to dumb it down and lower the expectations instead of being above and raising them up a little bit, not like too far above, but above and then advancing them along. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. I mean, I should qualify this also by saying that I had a very strange mother. Um, my mom basically um, raised and trained me to make, um, I guess, um, horror fantasy movies or um, and specifically H.P. Lovecraft adaptations um, from a very early age. Uh, um, she was, it's a little bit like Sarah Connor teaching a kid how to fight Terminators. Uh, my mom, um, very rapidly after King Kong, I think the next movies I saw, she took me to the local drive-in and I saw the original um Christopher Lee um, horror of Dracula on a double bill was Taste the Blood of Dracula and um, got introduced to Hammer Horror um, at a shockingly early age and um, as a result graduated rapidly onto reading the Bram Stoker book had myself a Bela Lugosi um, Aurora monster model kit and became a massive Dracula, um, Dracula fan very rapidly quickly found um, famous monsters of filmland um, became a fan of Boris and Bella, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and absolutely devoured that material as a, a proper creepy kid. And um, throughout that time, all of those those creatures, the Frankenstein's monster, Kong, creature from the Black Lagoon, were never um, fearsome to me as a child. They were always um, had the sensation of being talismanic, protective influences that made me feel um, deeply reassured. And um, it certainly was not deceived by me as a child as... Um, as something that was frightening or destabilizing. It also protected me from bullying at school because I was generally too creepy for the other kids to um, to go near. <laughs> and um, kind of exposure at a, a too early an age to um, some of that material, um, notably Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho and um, some of the edgier material, 
um, also made me aware of how dangerous other people could be. And um, as a result, even as a nine-year-old or a 10-year-old, I knew not to get in the car when the cub crawler pulled up opposite me and said, hey, kid, come this way, which happened a lot in um, South Africa. And um, an early awareness of um, yeah, pathological behavior in the adults coming from horror movies and from the comic books um, was definitely helpful and kept me out of trouble in a lot of ways that other kids who are utterly blind to that side of, the, of existence were unaware of. I also found that I developed a social conscience very early on, thanks to um, the kind of movies that were getting made in the early 70s and the kind of comic books I was reading, notably the Warren comic books, uh, a big shout out for um, Creepy, Eerie and Vampirella, all of which had very um, advanced and um, I think socio-political views were against the Vietnam War, were, um, were, were, was, was, were powerfully against apartheid. I was growing up in um, South Africa. I developed a, um, a strong sense of um, social justice um, at, a, at, a, at a very early age as a result of the, um, the material I was being exposed to. And I, I think that all of that really, really helped under the circumstances. If I'd just been listening to what the school teachers were saying or relying on um, the state television when it was eventually introduced, I might have ended up as much of a racist and as much of a psycho as um, many of my classmates. And that's the thing about broadening different viewpoints and and taking it in. And I think, to me, one of the things I learned from school years and years ago, and one of the teachers said, every day should be a busy learning working day. You know, you should always be striving to learn more and and trying to get different ideas. And that way you can funnel out the different things, the different facts and try to find out what is actually the truth to you, you know, and go through that because it's hard to sometimes when you get, um, if you only hear one voice, it's hard to balance what is the, the, the reality. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, um, ultimately uh, there really needs to be, um, a, a freedom to choose. Uh, um, I think um, a lot of kids will follow their, um, their their hearts and their noses when they know what they like. And, um, certainly, um, for me, I took a, um, a strange and dark path by um, getting um, falling very much in love with um, with weird fantasy. But um, yeah, it, it all it all led to good stuff. Now, your mom, as you as you brought up, she was an artist and an anthropologist, and she also, I believe, wrote a book, Myths and Legends of Southern Africa. Um, yeah, this is true. So, so, and she was obviously a big H.P. Lovecraft fan, as you mentioned earlier, and and obviously Hammer films and things like that. Um, she had a big influence with you, I take it, as becoming the the movie maker that you are now, judging by the you know the movies that we're going to be talking about in a little bit. What would so what anything else you want to say about her, like with, with raising you up, you know, besides you know, those movies? I mean, what are any other uh, influences she did? Well, she was a pretty, uh, pretty um, fierce lady. Um, I guess out of Devonshire, out of the West Country, out of um, Dartmoor, so brought with her a um, a, a belief in the fairy faith. People from the West Country tend to believe in pixies, in fairies, and witchcraft. It's notorious for that. And, um, thus, after the war, when she fled to Africa to get away from the austerity and went to Bulawayo because it had the word away in it and was far from um, where she was, where she'd been stuck up to that point, she brought with her a belief in the invisible world. 
and I think saw um, African culture in a way that the other um, colonials and settlers didn't. And um, it developed an interest in um, what we would call witchcraft, um, different cultural belief systems from very early on, and didn't mock or make fun of it in the way that so many other folk did. As a result, I grew up while she was researching her book, and um, I was dragged around any number of um, different um, bizarre tribal areas um, in, in Africa, um, and always with the goal of um, finding the local witch doctor, finding the local um, soothsayer, and interviewing them. And so as a kid, I was naturally, it was imprinted onto me that these were the important people in the community to speak to. And um, I found that they were, as a child, they were richly entertaining. Um, all of these folk are tremendous showmen. Like um, there was this guy, Zizwi Zonkwe was his name. And Zizwi Zonkwe could put two snakes into his mouth and they would come out of either nostril, uh, which, was, which, which made me laugh hysterically as a kid. Uh, the kind of party tricks that the, um, yeah, the different hungans and sorcerers could pull um, kept me richly amused. And at no point did I find that this was um, terrifying, scary, or um, or out of the normal. Because when you're four years old, five years old, you you just find it very, very funny. Uh, and I, I naturally believed in um, little hairy people who lived in riverbeds who had um, magic pebbles they kept in their mouths that made them invisible. I accepted a lot of stuff. And then it was only when I got to school and started meeting other kids that I realized that none of these things technically existed in the um, so-called real world. Uh, moreover, if you spoke about them, people would either think that you were crazy and needed to go see a psychiatrist, or they'd get very, very scared. Uh, then um, from that point, I started to realize that actually that, that reaction was something I could use, and that so long as I had the ability to, um, to scare my classmates, to um, think of the, the, the scariest story. Um, it, 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 within that was um, a, a, a social way forward for me. Uh, I guess I gravitated naturally into becoming a, um, a horror filmmaker. Well, it sounds like because you, with the images to you, which would seem perfectly normal, you realize how it was getting the um, the, the, the fear, the, 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 um, the scare, as you said, the the idea across to them, you know, and that because things that are different, anytime there's things that are different than the so-called norm is usually what jars people the most. And, but in different cultures that could be the normal. And then what they think is normal could jar them the most. Yeah, totally. I mean, at the core of the whole Lovecraft thing is the sphere of the unknown. And, um, the encountering something which is inexplicable and the irrational terror and panic that we feel at something which is completely out beyond our, um, our normal sphere of understanding. It's always puzzled me. Like um, if a, um, a glass or a bottle, say, moves by itself on the table, just squeaks like three inches to the left and then stops. Um, everyone in the room kind of freezes in, in, in fear and panic. Which doesn't, I've never understood because it's not really a hostile gesture. Um, it's not something that, you, uh, as a kid, my instinct would be to go and poke it to see if it moved again. Um, but um, by, by the uh, by the same token, people um, treat cars and aeroplanes with complete um, insouciance, whereas of course um, thousands of people are, are killed all the time by cars and, uh, and died aeroplanes. They're far deadlier than they, than any um, inanimate object moving by psychokinesis at the tabletop. But somehow they're, they're, um, the one thing doesn't doesn't scare us at all. We're just deceptors, even though we know it's dangerous. Uh, something which we 
which, which isn't particularly dangerous. We, we find um, hot stuff and get terrified. It's exactly, I agree with you exactly. It's just interesting how people have that different approach, approach to what we, that we what most people consider normal. But when you get that, that little bit that's off kilter to them, it, it can really, it can really throw them off. And I think that's just because now they're getting challenged with their core beliefs. And most people, those people don't like being challenged by that and just either disregard it or you think it was just uh, their imagination or, as you said, they'll start to get scared and then they don't want to talk to people about it because then they're worried about what the other people are going to think about them. Yeah, and that's freaky. I mean, and you, you also see an awful lot of um, violent reactions to um, quasi-supernatural, inexplicable events, which are really disproportionate. Uh, but we kind, of, we kind of accept it. Like um, if Nicole Kidman is tiptoeing down the staircase in the movie and there's creepy, ghostly piano music coming from the, um, the salon next door, we accept as an audience that her first reaction is to grab a shotgun and come in and burst in on the room. And I'm thinking in the cinema, well, why? Because it's playing the piano. Um, you, you don't really need the shotgun. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't to me seem um, terribly threatening, but on, on screen it kind of, yeah, um, we, we kind of accept that that's kind of the way to go. I mean, generally, um, when I, in my own experience of it, when a lot of folk um, are confronted by something inexplicable in real life, um, they get extremely uncomfortable and um, often demand an explanation. Um, when no one else has an explanation, they start to think that everyone else must be lying, that it must be some kind of trick on them. Um, they, they, go, they go into a real tailspin, and it can be something as simple as a, a background noise that no one can explain. But um, uh, after 10 minutes, people become um, yeah, super uncomfortable. It's difficult to allow um, the unknown to um, to simply take place without um, too much of a, um, a, a, a an emotional response. <laughs> <laughs> agreed, agreed, and, and and I think that's what's great about different filmmakers, or writers, whatever. When you can take those things in the unknown and add augment them into their creative works, and I think you're you're naturally pulling a lot of people along with that. And um, it, it, it seems like with your mother, you had that groundwork with going around and learning different things from different cultures and, and, and taking that. And you have that framework. And then obviously it looks like you've used that with different things in your works to put them into uh, your films. Yeah, and there's also a richness to all that material, which um, in many ways, it's a, it's a richer and, and better world. I'm always disappointed when I step out of a world where there's a, um, a complex magical belief system and find myself back in, um, in the trance of lounge again. Some part of me is deeply in love with it. Um, coming from, say, Haiti, full of different um, voodoo lower and um, endless internecine battles between sorcerers, uh, um, flying off the island and suddenly discovering that, yeah, well, voodoo doesn't really exist in the outside world, or at least not in the same way, and people don't send out pigeons to spy on people and things. It's kind of disappointing. Uh, I find it's a, yeah, it's, a, it's a much richer and kind of more reassuring world to, um, to exist in to begin with. And Utilizing that, you went into filmmaking, but the first, when you went to school, you were studying, what, anthropology also, like your mother did? 
I studied anthropology at college, and I think um, had it not been for apartheid and for the um, the proxy war against communism that Reagan was fighting at the time by financing so many dictators in the um, far-flung reaches of the world, um, I probably would have been an anthropologist and stayed in South Africa and followed my mother's um, lead and um, continued to try and hoover up as much um, data as I possibly could because... Um, there's so much um, that is simply unknown to us in the outside world. And um, I guess driven by that thrill of um, finding out things that nobody that, that are unwritten or unrecorded and um, the number of different um, ancient sites with um, literally Paleolithic um, rock paintings and artifacts that we've uh, never come across in any book before was enough that it, it, it put the hook in me and I would happily have um, spent my time um, continuing down that route had I not been um, basically inducted into the um, into the Angolan bush war by the South African army and forced to take sides as to whether I was with um, the uh, the white South African army or with the other folk. And um, that basically um, pushed me out of South Africa and um, started me on, the, on a different path. I found that um, when I finally crash landed in, um, in Europe, that um, none of my educational qualifications from South Africa were um, were valid or would be recognized in England. And I'd essentially have to go back to school again in order to try and get back into university. Um, that, that put a crimp in um, any academic plans, plus I didn't have the, um, the money to throw down for it. And instead, I found myself um, adrift in... Um, yeah, 80s Europe with a, a lot of um, Super 8 and videotape footage of um, weird, far-out-looking people um, doing odd, far-out things in strange-looking landscapes. And this I managed to translate into a career in music videos, which um, yeah, eventually, um, after multiple years in the um, in and out of um, different British record companies, I managed to translate into a, um, into a feature film career. It was kind of by accident and was pretty much out of um, a, a grim need for survival. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's definitely, regardless of what career path you take, you do need um, financial reserves in order to um, keep yourself taken care of, you know, like the, the basic needs, so to speak. Yeah, I guess that whatever the, the old ones or something just weren't going to let me be an academic and uh, stay put. They had different plans for me. That wasn't the path you were scheduled for. Yeah, and I, I should make a shout out here to Dario Argento because um, another hugely formative station on the on my particular journey was um, when I first got to London. I tried to reach out to my relatives in the hope that they would let me sleep on their couch. And um, I sought out a relative in North London, the only one I had, and knocked on their door. Um, they were not actually willing to let me in the door. They leaned out of a window higher up in the building and said, oh, Richard, what are you doing here? And I explained I was on the run from the South African military police, and um, they suggested that um, I should maybe come around for lunch next week. And um, a little disappointed by this reaction, I, w I was wandering down the street in North London towards King's Cross Railway Station when I went past the Scala Cinema and noticed that there was an all-day, all-nighter at the cinema. They were playing movies all day and all night. Um, I noticed that the price on the all-day, all-nighter was um, significantly less than the price of a hostel or anywhere else I might sleep for the night. And, uh, I had the good fortune of buying a ticket and thought I would sleep in the cinema. 
um, going into the Scala Cinema somewhere in the early in the early eighties, <clears throat> I accidentally exposed myself for the first time in, in a continuous procession to um, Bird of the Crystal Plumage, Cat and Nine Tails, Four Flies of Grey Velvet, Deep Red, Suspiria, which I saw for the first time that night on a, a wide screen with incredible sound, Inferno, and then Tenebrae was uh, as far as Argento had got at that point. I saw them all for the first time in a continuous sitting uh, right after getting to the UK. All of them had been banned or not distributed in Southern Africa. I'd not had the chance to be exposed to the, um, the raw, insane power of that work. Um, and, um, I, I stumbled out the next day, seriously altered by it. Um, then... Um, about one week later, there was a test preview at the same cinema of Phenomena, the new Argento film, and I rapidly got myself onto the list for the um, focus group for the Phenomena screening. And um, Dario Argento was there in person, and um, I ran into him outside the cinema. He was looking very nervous and was pacing around outside, and um, I offered him a joint. And um, he smoked it, calmed down, and... Um, then um, he took my name and my phone number, and um, a couple of weeks later called me back. And um, this early connection of Dario, I think, also really um, caused me to um, take a step much closer to the horror genre. Um, during that same period, I'd, a Super 8 movie I'd made um, won a big award on BBC Two in the British um, British state um, television broadcaster. And the awards were handed out by um, Alan Parker. Um, when I went to the award ceremony, Alan Parker shook my hand, but never actually looked at me properly. Um, continued the conversation he was having with the person um, he was talking to. And, um, zero connection happened. So um, I guess I, I was never, I never felt compelled towards fame or um, Bugsy Malone. Instead, from um, from the the encounter with Dario. Uh, um, I took a step closer to Suspiria right from the top and um, it directed me down a certain path. Yeah, I remember when I first saw Suspiria, um, I'd always I'd always heard about it and I'd never seen it. And then um, I teach classes. I was teaching at the time for the Red Cross. And one of the questions I always ask at the beginning for people for like an icebreaker, it was like, what's your favorite film? And, um, and this one guy said Suspiria and he went into why. And then during the breaks, we were talking about the film and he says, but I wrote it down, you know, and I asked him how to spell it, you know, because, you know, it's like Suspiria. And he said, it's I said, why do you like it so much? And he says, the cinematography is going to blow you away. When you go to watch this, it's just it's just amazing with the camera work and all these other things, the colors and, and so on. And so that that week I sought it out, got it on um, DVD, put it in. And I was just like, literally, as he said, blown away. It was just such an amazing film. And that was my first experience seeing Suspiria. You know, it was, it was all because somebody else, like your, like yourself, who was a fan of it, you know, and I happened to ask that question, you know, what's one of your favorite films? And he happened to throw that out there. And then, and when a lot of people would do that, they throw if they're really adamant about that film being their favorite, and if I hadn't seen it, I would always seek it out. But his was definitely one that made me do it right away. Yeah, I mean, I just those first 10 minutes of Suspiria, the cab ride from the airport alone, um, I knocked my eyeballs out. Uh, I, I did have the good luck of um, seeing it on a proper cinemascope screen, though, so it was just um, 
Sebag are so much bigger, and I, I, I would, I'd stupidly thought I'd try and sleep in the cinema, but there was absolutely zero chance. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm happy. <laughs> well, at least you still had shelter. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that set me on a very determined path, and um, yeah, years later, um, when we completed the hardware. And we had the first married answer print. The um, very first thing we, um, that myself and Joanne Seller, the producer, did was we um, flew it immediately to Rome, uh, hired a small previous theater, and um, got Dario and Claudio to watch the damn thing, and, um, which was a, a nerve-wracking experience. Neither, neither of them moved or um, showed any sign of um, emotion um, throughout the screening. Oh, I was paralyzed with fear in the, the rear of the previous theater. And um, then um, when um, the thing was over and Dario was about to leave, he, um, he suddenly turned around and came up to me and he said, um, your, your film, the, the, the colors, the reds and the oranges, the, the way the camera moves is, is emotional, is it's psychological. I like. Uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they gave me a hug. It was terrifying, but yeah, um, at the same time, that was a it was a major thing. I have to I have to thank Dario and um, still consider him to be my um, my true mentor in in this business. Yeah, I was gonna say for for horror, it's hard to have a it's hard to have a mentor like that. You know, not to have a mentor like that where he can just guide you because he's gotten he's done so much excellent work um that i've seen you know i mean i've seen all the movies now that you've brought up but i saw them all after suspiri it was just like oh, i want to see other works that he has done and things along those lines and it's just it's just it's just really it's always amazing yeah so uh, of course um nothing was ever as good again um that was part of the problem was that uh, a little bit like um chasing that initial high um, yeah, that, that, watching them all uh, for the first time in, um, in sequence like that on the big screen, particularly up to that point in Argento's career up to um, Tenebrae, um, the, the rest of my life it was always a bit like, um, I don't know, um, methadone versus heroin or something. It was, it was chasing a, a, some kind of insane ecstatic high that I could never really repeat. But um, he suddenly knocked it out of the park for me right at the top. Yeah, you definitely got him at his peak. So it's uh, it, 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 yeah. you hit him at the right time, at the right moment, and everything everything fell into place, so to speak. Or was it all preordained? Who knows? Yeah, indeed. But yeah, great days, and um, really the best of um, what rep repertory cinema used to be about. It's uh, hard to explain to folks these days what it was like uh, once upon a time when um, people were still smoking in cinemas. Uh, when it was um, normal practice to um, roll a joint and sit in the front row, and when there were still ashtrays in the um, in the arms of those things, the scarlet cinema, the floor was slightly sticky. People sometimes brought their animals with them. Um, um, so when you, when there was an all day all nighter, which was like along the lines of um, Cheech and Chong's Up in Smoke, plus um, the Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the Eighth Dimension, plus um, Fritz the Cat, plus the Grateful Dead in concert, plus the Monkeys in Head, plus Richard Rush's Psych Out. Um, you you could expect when you walked into the auditorium there'd just be this wall of pungent smoke coming out at you, and people lying strewn all over the place. The same with the um, you know, Rocky Horror the old day old nighters it's just no no world like that exists now to uh, communicate to the next generation what um what 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 cult cinema was actually ever about <laughs> yeah, the, the sadly those days are i think 
um, gone forever and you know except except maybe where they could see films or documentary or style that show what it was like in that experience but they'll never nobody's ever going to live through it um as in our generation you know and that kind of stuff and the general you know was able to do and, and able to see these things it's, it's super unfortunate and i find that i'm still in some ways making films for that audience I have to try and course correct myself the whole time, and that when I'm now in the 21st century, and I'm not still pitching to the um, the same auditoriums I once was. Uh, I, I, I tend to um, in um, blocking scenes, uh, delivering dialogue, and coming up with the different um, horror movie frissons and punchlines. I tend to unconsciously leave space for people to yell back at the audience. The character says a stupid line, and there's a slight pause because I want someone in like row five to scream "asshole." And, um, yeah. <laughs> it's, kind of... <laughs> it's almost like you should go William Castle and hire a couple of people to show up at different theaters and just at this moment yell this. <laughs> yeah, it's just not the same. People at poker lame these days. The, 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 the experience isn't, isn't quite isn't quite what it was, and we have to accept that most folk are going to be watching these things at home anyway. And that, um, unfortunately, um, the world is heading towards streaming the more so now that we're in the middle of um, some kind of ongoing um, goddamn apocalypse. Yeah, that's sadly, it, it, it's, uh, I think cinema in the mass theaters for especially independent work is going to be very hard for them to get in. I'm lucky where I live in the Baltimore area, we still have um, a couple of um, theaters that played independence regularly and you're able to go see them in the cinema and, and enjoy it and so it's not only just streaming but how long are they going to be able to survive uh, well, it remains to be seen but it's just i'm still fortunate enough to be able to get that experience of seeing the works the way the filmmaker meant them to be seen on the big screen and sometimes you're lucky where you're able to see them with a sizable group but at least you know maybe 20 30 people you know and um it'll be interesting as we come out of these, these, this current climate, how well those movies are going to survive and how well those theaters are going to survive, or is it going to be all heading towards eventually, as it looks like, to the streaming process? And um, and, and that's something I, I think that for down the generations down the road are going to really miss that that shared experience of going there and having that, that theater move, not just them, but the group in, in mass. And I think that that is the experience that's going to be missing down the road yeah and that's certainly unfortunate i mean i do definitely craft my work for a big auditorium and um i was super pleased with um some of the um screenings of color out of space before um the whole lockdown process started and it was a it's always a joy to um to yeah to have the the whole auditorium um rising out of their seats at the, at the same moment and feeling that um, they, they're um, being transported or by the, by, by the actual experience. That was, um, yeah, so one of the, one of, for me as a filmmaker, one of the great joys and something that um, clearly we will not have out of the, um, out of the whole streaming experience. And um, super strange also is the way that a film's perceived merit is very much down to um, the, um, the way the audience receives it. I mean, the number of times that I've um, been through the experience of seeing a movie with the audience that's hated the movie and it's completely, completely died to death, uh, and I'm seeing the same movie with a different audience who are uh, maybe on different substances and um, seeing them absolutely having the time of their lives. Uh, it's um, 
it's crazy how the um the, the folk we see out of the corner of our eyes influence whether we decide to laugh and go with the thing or not and um, we can sometimes need that audience to really get the um the full squeeze out of um out of a movie oh i agree with you and um speaking of your movies hardware which you brought up earlier a little bit you, you came out in 1990 and that is that was an interesting movie. I remember watching it a few years ago, and you know, for those that haven't seen it, it's it's pretty much um, a killer robot that was taken apart. Um, the head was put on a sculpture. It self replicates, self heals, and it goes into this thing where it, its whole thing is to eliminate flesh because of overpopulation. And what happens to the people that are around this sculpture and how they deal with the, um, the, the thing that the, was artificial, that was accidentally brought back to existence. And what was it like? I, I'm trying not to give the film away, you know, <laughs> for those guys. Yeah, you'd, it. it, 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 well, you'd have to see it, I guess, to experience it. Because again, um, hardware is a film which is very involved in um, the sensory experience of the, of the audience. It's a film which is best imbibed late at night uh, and there's a very loud volume. It's a very cheap film. We made it for under a million, for 800 grand back in the day. So we, it was released around about the same time as Terminator 2, which I think was 120 million. So we were a, a tiny movie by um, comparison, but we figured we could be louder and more abrasive. Uh, um, hardware is a very loud movie. Uh, um, it, uh, it kind of slips progressively into a state of heightened hysteria. Uh, 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 which I think uh, hopefully reaches a semi-transcendental level. Uh, I find that it starts to slide from pretty much the moment that shades the space jockey takes a um, a tab of some of moon flash or some kind of um, um, psychedelic drug, um, which happens about 20 minutes into the movie, 30 minutes in. Uh, then from that point, things start to get very strange and um, and, and terrifying indeed. And I, I wanted to reproduce a sense of. Um, uh, I, I guess of um, extreme trauma, and I find even today um, kids come into hardware where at revival screenings and um, are quite happy to um, smile or laugh at the retro hair and the look of the film. But I'm always pleased to see how traumatized they look by the end. They never expect the experience to be um, quite as uh, a, 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 as awful as, as the hardware experience actually is. It's a, a real mother of a bad trip. So, um, yeah, I think that side of it is well-structured and, um, yeah, stands up well. And it's, uh, the, uh, the attack on the, um, the audience's consciousness is super sustained. Um, Teller Out of Space buys for a similar, um, a, 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 a similar structure. It's got a, much the same structure as hardware, which um, is deceptively slow for the, um, the first um, 20, 30 minutes, but then um, just keeps um, emotionally amping up and pushing it to some um, terrible place, which is, I guess, beyond despair and beyond fear for the, for the, for the, for the lead cast members. <laughs> which, um, uh, and it tries to yeah, drag the audience with it, which I think so, yeah, continues to hopefully be a, a bracing experience. Now, for, for Color Outer Space, for listeners that haven't seen it, it came out, obviously, like you said, recently. It came out in 2019, so it came out just before all the um, um, the COVID, coronavirus, all that stuff started to happen. And um, uh, it was it, it's basically based off H.P. Lovecraft. You have Nicolas Cage. You have Jolie Richardson. I mean, you have 
amazing actors right there to go with it. And you have a basis from one of the, you know, one of the great writers of, um, hard type craft, you know, with Lovecraft going into it. What was, what was it like trying to, um, mold this film into get, cause I know it, 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 this did not happen overnight. This, this took a while for you to be able to get this project off the ground. Yeah, I was certainly a, a, um, a, a tricky experience that took many uh, strange twists and turns. Uh, I'm pleased to say that um, we, um, just last Sunday it won the um, Fangoria Golden Chainsaw Award for Best Limited Release Film of um, 2020. So um, we obviously did something right. Um, many, many challenges um, in the course of it, um, in many drafts of the script, um, probably the biggest difficulty was that um, from the time that um, Nick Cage said, yes, he's, he can do it, and he had a window of opportunity, which was four weeks of, um, of free time that we had with Nick from um, the end of January um, 2019, um, it meant that we only had six weeks to prep the movie in, and uh, those six weeks fell over um, Christmas and New Year, um, and it was in the middle of winter. Um, and most of the um, northern hemisphere was under snow, um, so we couldn't go to New England. And, um, it's a film which is set um, pretty much close to harvest time, uh, and the, the rural um, setting, uh, the, the forest and the farm itself, super important to the um, to the, the look and feel of the film. So having to um, recreate um, a facsimile of New England as harvest time um, within six weeks. Um, in the middle of winter, I think was the um, the biggest tall order, the biggest ask of of, of color, uh, as well as yeah, finding the rest the rest of the cast members. A lot of folks thought it was impossible on the on the budget. Many of the um, art directors, production designers, that went out to said, "Fine, but you'll have to rewrite the script." And um, can you set it in snow? And it's like, no. If it's set in snow, it's going to start looking too much like John Carpenter's thing. It already looks like the thing. We need to go the other way. We need to, it needs to be in, <laughs> in, uh, yeah, in, in proper harvest time colors. And um, then we ended up recreating it in Portugal or in Sintra, Portugal, which was, uh, we, we also needed alpacas. We needed somewhere where the climate was right. And um, a lot of that, um, of the gardener farm, is um, a, a, a creation of um, yeah, production designer Katie Byron. And the art, the Portuguese art department, who um, just did an extraordinary fucking job of um, building and creating that place. Um, a, a huge amount of it is artificial, and um, has yeah, been constructed for the film. Pretty much all of the plants have been put in. We've um, used VFX to make try and keep the, um, the flora consistent with New England to um, make certain that there's no intrusive Mediterranean foliage. It's, uh, that, 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 I think, was the, um, for me the, the biggest challenge. Uh, and then on top of that, we had to obviously create a realistic family to inhabit the farm. Uh, I think the place where um, so many um, haunted house movies um, fall down is that um, more effort is put into the um, special effects and into the um, the creature effects than into the believability of the um, of the central family, and we had such a short amount of time to um, bring those folk together and to try and um, um, bond them into a family unit that we could actually um, believe in in order to um, then um, brutally destroy the, uh, the the family one at a time the way the way it does. So um, that that was a a good challenge. And, and those are the films I like the most in the horror genre where you, you 
developed that fondness for the characters, for the main characters, or even the supporting characters. So when, when bad things happen to them, you really care about them. So many, as you said, so many horror films just want to get to the kills, to the ground. And, and some people like that. Some people just are just there to see um, gory death scenes and all the other stuff that, and, and that's all they want to, that's all they want in the movie. And that, that's fine for them. But for me, I like to actually be moved. So when that was something, because you're like, no, no, you don't want it to happen to them. And then when it happens, which, which you, you kind of, like sometimes you know something bad's going to happen to but you care so much for him, you hope that end, that ending will not happen to him this time or if you're rewatching it. And I think that's that's the nice thing about having characters that give them a chance to breathe. Totally. And it's also, uh, it's tricky because, um, in fact, the um, the way, the ecology of low-budget filmmaking really militates against it. It's very, very difficult to achieve given... Um, the realities of yeah, low bud, low to medium budget filmmaking and international co-productions, because you get, you get situations where you're like we have where um say you have to shoot um New England and Portugal in the middle of the winter, then you have union issues where you're only allowed to bring in like say two um American cast members, and um, things start to get tricky. You end up with situations like. Uh, an example that would spring to mind is Halmi Balaguero's Darkness from Filmax, which I recall has the haunted house. The, the lead parents are Ian Glenn, who's um, English, Lena Olin, who's Hungarian, um, the, and the kid is Anna Paquin. Uh, we can almost figure out that Anna Paquin's the kid of those two, but then they can't afford to bring in the grandparents. So grandma and grandma are totally Spanish. And I'm thinking, how did the Spanish guys give birth to um, Ian Glenn, who's so British? Uh, they end up with the, the, the kid who's from New Zealand. So, um, yeah, trying to create a family unit that looked like they're actually related to each other. Uh, um, we're all of the same nationality and have similar um, um, ways of speaking. Is Given that with a low budget, you're going to have hardly any rehearsal time. They try and cut your rehearsal time and the amount of time you can have your full cast together around a, around a table and advance down to a minimum. So, yeah, the ecology of the, the way it works, the pressure on you to bring the leading man in just the day before it starts and not to be able to have a week or two weeks where you can bond with the, the kid who's playing his kid um, is, is strong. So you have to really fight against that, I think, when one's making this kind of movie. And it's a, it's a constant challenge. And I think... Um both you and I are fans of 70s cinema, and I think that's part of the reasons I like where characters get a chance to develop, because most of the time in 70s cinema, the characters were the centerpiece of the films, and and then whatever was going to happen to them, pretty much almost regardless of genre, you, you, you've you developed whether you care for them or whether you despise that character, because you, you know, it's nothing like having a great villain that you just totally despise and you want to see something happen to them or a very complicated villain who you understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. And then things go around, you know, and, and you could see the ride why they took that path and you feel more heartbroken for them, but still they deserve whatever end is going to come to them. And, and of course, seventies was also known for those endings, which were not always happy. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I kind of missed that in a way. Uh, the classic 70s ending where everything's fine and then a goddamn steam train comes out of nowhere and just mows down the entire cast or everyone is just killed in a random hail of gunfire. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then maybe you get like a pseudo Joan Baez song on the soundtrack where it um, still, kind of, still kind of does it for me. At least that's what I hope. I, I would hope that I have the same end one day. I, I guess... Um, if I if I had a preferred for an end for Richard, I would like to go down in a blaze of gunfire. Hopefully, while somebody yelled my name, uh, would be um, if, I, if I had a choice. Um, I, I think my favourite um, Sam Peckinpah quote comes from Bloody Sam towards the end of his regime, when he said to someone, um, "I don't want to go out like Roman Polanski screwing some twelve-year-old. I want to go out in flames." <laughs> 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 uh, but I was going to say, really, if you look at hardware and you look at the color of money, you, you don't really, I mean, they don't end happy, you know, and, and, and the, the way it's left open is things are going to get worse. So in a sense, that, that 70s vibe is there. It's not, as, it's not as, as you said, hitting you in the face like the 70s movies would with total annihilation of everybody, but it it's left there where you can go with your logical conclusion that things aren't going to go well for the world, you know, at large in, in the, at the end of both of these films. Yeah, I think you can definitely draw that conclusion. Um, although it's, hope, it, it's not without some slender glimmer of hope because I'm not a total nihilist. Um, some part of me deep down within still thinks that somehow maybe it could come out okay. But I can see it's going to be a um, a very crooked path, a very a very difficult way forward. And um, yeah, um, to, um, Color Out of Space looks forward to um, the um, the next installments in the um, the Lovecraft um, series, which um, I, I am very much looking forward to um, bringing home to roost. And certainly, um, the way that it's leading is um, it's leading towards the return of the old ones who are not yet manifest in color. We can see color out of space as almost being a sign or an omen, like um, the, the falling of the star of Wormwood. But um, up ahead for planet Earth, is, um, there, there, there's still an awful lot which is, um, need, needs to be dealt with. So um, the big challenge for me on top of everything else is that uh, um, where I would like to take this in the, um, the next film is to literally bring on um, one of these um, elder beings, one of these elder gods, which um, comes down to how do you actually um, visualize and um, create the face of God or create the, the appearance of a, of a deity on screen in a way that um, lands with the, um, the required force with the, with the audience that we actually are um, delivered the presence of an, an ultra-dimensional alien deity. So um, certainly it's, um, it's going to take a, um, at the stage I'm now at, um, given all the opposition that's been thrown in my path, um, I imagine it's going to take about um, a year and a half to two years. And um, we're certainly beavering away on it. I'm going to say good luck with trying to put into picture that which is never, ever described. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the challenge, and, uh, and um, to do it with um, with the um, 
I guess the gravitas and the um, the, the, the the power that it deserves, and to um, and also do it in a way that people are not expecting, but which makes some uh, fundamental sense of the material. Because I think that people are still um, misunderstanding Lovecraft even now. I think that um, Color Out of Space helped open a few doors. And um, the mythos has shifted a bit in the popular consciousness. More people have heard of it. And um, we're we're starting to see how it connects with um, socio-political issues. And I've been delighted to see um, Lovecraft Country on television. Um, It's nice to see that... um, that Spike Lee has got his own Lovecraft project going, uh, which is a development that um, has delighted me greatly. Uh, um, but at the same time, the popular perception still seems to be that it's um, about things of tentacles. Uh, it, it, it's, it's still pitched sort of slightly jokey um, kind of populist way. I mean, I think the uh, um, the definition of um, of Cthulhu and, uh, and of the old ones needs to be... Um, needs to be straightened out and um, it's also about time that the old ones had a um, had a messiah or an antichrist had a, a, a had a sentient embodiment that was able to um, communicate directly with the with the audience so that we get a clearer sense of um, of what it is we're actually dealing with here <laughs> and the reason I say the reason I say good luck with that because regardless of what you come up with with the, with the Lovecraftian fans, those that have read the work, you're going to please half of them, and the other half are going to say that, that's totally wrong. And I, I think regardless of what you come up with, I think it's going to be a 50-50 or 40-60 split, you know, between them because they already have in their mind a preconceived notion. And unless it, your, your vision somewhat comes close to what they imagine, they're going to already be put off. And that's just, you know, every, it's hard. Like I said, how how do you describe something that was never described by the original author? You know, it was it, it's 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 a task wow. of monumental, it'd be monumental and, and and almost impossible. Um, true, but um, nonetheless, um, I'm pretty um excited by um some of the places this has gone, and that um lengthy um examination um, back engineering of um, Lovecraft texts um, reveals lots of um, clues and, um, Lovecraft gives away more than we give him credit for and I think it's because he has this habit of saying very important things in just two three words sometimes and then spending another three paragraphs talking about the trees that um, sometimes the, the the really key data slips right by one, uh, and it only takes like five or six rereadings before you go, hey, what, what the fuck was that again? And then when finally um Google's on the word and, and looks looks a bit more into what the guy was actually driving at, I mean, like a good example being the way that um, concepts of um, chaos science keep coming up, um, and the the parallels you can make between um, what Lovecraft describes as non-Euclidean geometry. And our, um, our modern-day concept of um, fractal geometry. Um, certainly, when I was at school, and I, I recall using uh, the Lovecraftian term non-Euclidean geometry in a um, in an essay, and having the essay returned to me with a big red ring around it from the teacher saying there's no such thing that Euclid invented geometry, uh, and um, therefore all geometry is by its nature Euclidean. 
Um, of course, now in the present day, we discover that Euclidean geometry isn't actually the only form of geometry. And in fact, we use fractals to do all kinds of incredible things like creating our, um, our VFX for us. And we also um, see that this is a much closer way of, of um, describing the natural um, way that um, things are organized with it, literally within nature. And um, zooming into some of the... Um, some of Lovecraft's um, phrases and things. I've, I, I have the sheer folly of thinking that um, I start to um, perhaps understand the old ones better. I noticed that um, the original name for the Necronomicon is Alaziff, the um, the buzzing and the trilling of the night the night insects, which um, takes us in towards these ideas of um, high frequency and low low frequency sound, uh, and, um, which again brings us back to the the notion of the old ones being ultra-dimensional creatures, why we can't see the thing that tears um, Abdul Hazrat apart. It's there, but we can't see it because it's literally beyond our ability to um, to perceive the damn things. Uh, um, lurking within Lovecraft's horror is a kind of mad science, which um, I, I have the folly of um, thinking I have an angle on it at the moment. So I guess I'll bear that out. And presumably um, 30% of the world who see it will, will like it. Another thirty percent will go. Nah, that's nothing like I imagined. And then there'll probably be about twenty percent who want to try and get my home address, track me down, and literally burn me at the stake for it. <laughs> so yeah, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> what did they say? You, you can never please if you try to please all the people all the time. You end up pleasing nobody at any of the time. You know. So it's it's. I'm just looking forward to seeing it because. My whole thing is is when people have different images in their mind, it means the work actually has a, um, a, a bill, a following. And I've, I'd rather have people say, I see what you were doing, but I would have saw it this way. I'd rather have somebody do that discussion. And which means they've actually know the work and are familiar with it. than have somebody just, just totally who's not familiar with the work trying to um, go against the grain, you know, say, Oh, this, this isn't the way I saw it because I saw a cart, you know, I saw a picture of, Cthulhu and it's supposed to look like this, you know, and, and it's like, well, but they've never read the work. So they have, it's, it's kind of hard for them to have an educated response. And I know there's many times where I've read books and then you see the movie go up there and, and I, in, in the book, you'd have an image of the creature a certain way from the way it's described. And so you have a mental image. And then so, sometimes the movie matches it pretty well. And sometimes it doesn't, but it doesn't bother me because everybody has that different interpretation. And, um, I usually will look to see not as much if that matches it, but if the storyline is pretty close and the, and the characters are close, or if there's a good interpretation of of that. So it it, it doesn't it, it doesn't really bother me as much as it would bother other people. I think, um, you know, when they when they go to different creative works. Yeah, and I also think every generation, in a way, has a um, responsibility to, to to reinterpret the classics for themselves. I mean, there really has to be a, a Dracula every uh, every twenty five years or so, if not sooner. Uh, there, there needs to be another Frankenstein every every so many years. It's just um, the way it works. We and um, going back to the source material. There's always more. Um, there's always stuff in there which people haven't noticed and haven't brought out and different uh, different um, inflections of meaning and different ways that these things can be taken. You know, I have not yet seen the ultimate Dracula or the ultimate Frankenstein. That by now, I've probably seen hundreds of them. Real quick, there's two other things I just wanted to mention with you. I know we we kind of jumped to the one. Dust Devil was another one. And I, what, 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 
how did you come across the idea of Dust Devil? Because that was the movie came out in 1992, and it was set up, set in South Africa, which obviously you know rather well. And um, but I like the concept of this this dust demon, dust devil, possessing people. You going from person to person. It was it was very. Um, it reminded me of that Star Trek episode where it was um, Jack the Ripper who would go and, 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 and go into different bodies and make them do these evil deeds and, and, and possess them, um, you know, going from back to my roots. And it, so it was, it was similar to me to that. I don't know what, how you came up with that concept. Well, um, a lot of my mother's research fed into Dust Devil, Dust Devil and Dust Devil does use a lot of ideas from yeah, African witchcraft. Uh, most of what's mentioned in the course of the movie is uh, true as far as um, it being material that I borrowed from my mum. And uh, essentially on that level, it's very similar, I guess, to the Native American idea of um, the Wendigo, which operates in a, in, a, in a similar manner and is also associated with the wind as a, some kind of disembodied um, um, spirit or, or, or entity. And um, I guess you can see similar concepts in a number of different movies. I mean, uh, probably most prominently in um, David Lynch's Twin Peaks. But, um, yeah, um, Dust Devil was, happened because it was the first idea I had for a movie as a teenager. I, it was an idea that just stated when I was about 13 or 14. And it seemed like the easiest movie we could make. It seemed like a simple idea that, well, that we, like, what can I shoot if, I, if I'm going to shoot something with real human beings rather than claymation dinosaurs and we're going to jump up to shooting on 16 millimeter and recording sound. Um, it was an idea that, uh, let's have two characters. There's the lady driving the car and the guy hitchhiking. Um, um, we can shoot it outside. We can use the African landscape. Um, um, it just seemed like the, um, the the simplest thing we could uh, we could come up with uh, with the um, resources at our disposal. And, um, this led into, shoot, into attempting to shoot it on 16 millimeter. The first dust devil was shot at 16 millimeter. Uh, it was a, a nightmarish, disastrous, horrific experience for all of us involved. Um, then the script of the 16 millimeter got lost and um, lay around for about. 10 years, I guess, uh, um, after hardware, the script came into the hands of, um, of Miramax and a number of other um, fairly unscrupulous folk who um, then insisted that we should make Dust Devil. Uh, I kind of wasn't in the mood to go back and remake Dust Devil at that point because I knew what a nightmare it had been the first time around. But um, I guess if given my own head, I would have moved on to a hardware too. But uh, um, instead, I got diverted back to Africa and had to uh, make Dust Devil on 35mm in the, in the Namib Desert, which at the time I thought was the worst thing that could possibly have happened to me. Uh, and, um, once we got through Dust Devil, I was convinced that the shooting, the shooting of it was the, um, the, the, the very worst experience of my life. I mean, I, I think we, um, there was something like 44 different production vehicles that were totally written off in the course of the movie. There were, it's really a, a, a thousand miles of rough road in that thing. Uh, of course, I hadn't encountered the island of Dr. Moreau yet or any of the stuff that was coming further down the pike. So um, next to which I, um, Dust Devil now, now seems like small beer. 
and um, at least no one was actually seriously injured and nobody died on the production. So I'm I'm grateful we came through it. But it was um, it's certainly a, an outrageous movie shot in a, an extremely difficult location. And and, and um, I actually enjoyed the the look of it because it reminded it it was to me like an Italian western mixed in with um, horror type elements. But it's not really a horror film. It was more like a serial killer film in my mind. But supernatural elements, I should say, maybe like um, spaghetti western and supernatural with a little serial killer mix. Yeah, it's a super strange movie. I think the key part about Dust Devil is the um, driving. Um, there's a, um, a deserted driving cinema in the middle of it, which is um, playing um, Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, another um, generic cultural meltdown movie, which is Vampires Meet Kung Fu, uh, along with uh, Bird of the Crystal Plumage, the first Argento Giallo. Uh, so um, it, it's this weird fusion of drive-in movie genres in Africa. Uh, like they're in, I, I saw all of my drive-in movies in similar back of beyond African drive-in settings where um, a bunch of super strange people would be watching, uh, usually a spaghetti western. Uh, then on the uh, with it, you'd have something like a Euro trash policia or um, crime movie. There's certainly a Dust Devil is a fusion of a um, an African spaghetti western road movie police procedural um, romance. Um, in which the victim and the killer get to dance together to Hank Williams' music and share a kiss in the, in the, in the middle of the movie. So it's it's not that determined to scare the audience, but um, it's definitely um, it blurring together a series of um, of generic elements, which are, I think are, are, are fairly unique. It's a, a very strange cocktail. And um, also comes from a, a culture that most people are not familiar with. Yeah, um, the Seven Golden Vampires is is one of my favorite seventies horror um, Hammer films because I, I I love martial arts. You know, you put the, put that with Peter Cushing and you got the vampire, I mean the vampires. You know, it's just I don't know. I always enjoy it. It's just it it's 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 fun. It's some sometimes a little goofy, but it's just it, and to me the right ways. It's all just enjoyable and and and, and I yeah, just enjoy I just it. See it. I did see that in an African drive-in for tribal audience, uh, which um, I guess is exactly where, uh, where where Dust Devil is coming from. Uh, it, it's a, a, a kind of, a, yeah, a, a cultural melting pot of a whole bunch of different insane elements. In, in Dust Devil, the Van Helsing character, the, um, the, the witch doctor drive-in projectionist is the one who um, advises the character on how to deal with the demon. So I, I like to imagine that it's coming in equal parts from... Um, from tribal mythology and from um, lengthy exposure to um, to drive-in movies and, uh, and Hammer horror films. Well, you, you can't get you can't get much better influence than Hammer horror films. I mean, when you're when you're coming up with films, because it's it's rare that they put out a bad one. I mean, they, they they've done bad. I mean, they've done ones I didn't care for as much, but for the most part, their work is just excellent. Yeah, and as with the Argento. Um, uh, the one thing I've always taken to heart is a minimum standard of technical excellence. I, I, I really don't like to have anything in the in the movie that's there for just for um, the sake of the plot or the movie. I, I do like to make certain that every single um, goddamn shot or angle has some kind of um, has something going for it. Has some kind of reason to act or a reason to exist. And um, yeah, I will always take my hat off to those guys. Now. Uh, I'm, I'm most hesitant to bring this up, but 
the island of Dr. Moreau, you did bring it up a little bit. And I know you that this was a thing where you started and then you were let go a week into the production and stuff like that. But I know there, there were some good things, I guess, that came out. I mean, you did get to meet Marlon Brando, who was a big proponent for you to do the film. What was it like? What was Marlon Brando like? Um, I, I thought he was sane. I don't think he was crazy in the slightest. I think he was misrepresented as constantly being um, mad Brando, and they um they blamed a lot of the problems on the movie on him because Brando was on the film and everything was crazy. But in point of fact, none of the really crazy things that happened were Brando's fault, and nor was he actually present when um, most of the really bad things happened. So um, I felt he was, he was a convenient scapegoat. Um, I felt sorry for him. Um, his um, life was a terrible mess and uh, turning rapidly into a Grecian tragedy. With, uh, so um, uh, he, he, he certainly had my sympathy. And um, I also felt that um, he was... Um, it, he was kind of a, a master of um, intuition. Um, I think he could read people's body language and their, their tone of voice so well that um, he knew that people, everyone was lying to him. Like, people would have the temerity of trying to lie to Brando left, right, and center, like have all these different um, executives and different folk uh, um, constantly coming up with some absolute bullshit line. And um, uh, uh, of course, Brando could see through all of that. So um, I felt that he was naturally contemptuous of the um, of, of, of a lot of the, the business because um, he'd been around long enough and he had the smarts and the intuition to be able to see it for the garbage that he was most of the time. Um, they didn't entirely suffer fools lightly. But I don't think that was a anything to do with him being crazy. And uh, I also noticed that he was extremely manipulative. Uh, he, he was able to use all those subtle little, tell, little tells and um, tiny little things to really get what he, what he wanted out of folk or to, um, get, to, to, get, to get what he was driving at, which um, we, 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 he was an absolute master of that. I mean, um, uh, I noticed this in the very first meeting I had with him when he put the um, the new line executive who accompanied me to sleep during the meeting, and, um, which was which was astounding. The, the the suit was there to keep an eye on the, the meeting and report back what was happening. Yet within um, twenty minutes, she was fast asleep, and um, then slept through the rest of the meeting. And Brando got down to business. I recall seeing him doing something similar on the Larry King show when he remarks early on in the show, this is, if you can find this on YouTube and check it out, that uh, um, Larry is sweating. Uh, then he comes back to it a moment later at the uh, 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 and having tagged the idea of sweating Larry, Larry starts to sweat uh, more and more um, throughout, the, throughout the interview. And then Brando takes out his own handkerchief and says, let me mop your forehead and suddenly ends up putting his handkerchief right over Larry's head. Uh, the, the, the way that, <laughs> that that played out, or the way that he put the executive to sleep, or the way that he say allegedly wound up Trevor Howard on Mutiny and the Bounty by um, insisting on on pegging his cue card to um, Trevor Howard's chest during their confrontation scenes, um, I, I think is um, yeah for me very subtle and amusing. And um, <clears throat> I also love the way that he takes scenes always in a diametrically opposite direction from the. Um, the way you're expecting them to go. And as a result, usually ends up introducing um, a rare touch of um, life 
to the to the goddamn movie. Uh, I'm so happy when in Apocalypse Now when um, we finally get to Kurtz and he starts talking about gardenias. Uh, thank God, I, I, I was distressed in the Redux cut when they put in um, footage of Kurtz quoting Time magazine instead. Because no, I love the fact that he starts talking about gardenias. I, lo- I love the fact that in the um, dry white season, when everyone's banging on about apartheid, we finally get to Brando and he talks about the allergy he has for his pot plants, which, um, yeah, again, um, injects an element of, yeah, life and uh, a kind of reality into the film, which is, um, yeah, m- massively required. So I, I, throughout, I thought he was a genius and um, completely in possession of his faculties. And um, I thought he was, yeah, unfairly treated by the... Um, accompanied by the world and by the media. Um, when um, his daughter died, um, the world responded by getting a long lens photo of Brando in his underwear and um, he was splashed all over the papers as being um, as big as Moby Dick, etc. Uh, in person, he did not seem to be, um, uh, um, to, to, for his age, um, overly large. Uh, it was, um, I felt that um, he was treated very cruelly. Um, yeah, I did get the chance to hang with him a little afterwards in um, Queensland, and um, that was um, that was refreshing. Um, I recall um, we went up to um, Karanda and to um, and had um, lunch with a bunch of Aboriginal Sunday school kids. Uh, it was refreshing because um, only one of the, the the locals even vaguely recognised him. Um, uh, there was one girl there who thought, well, isn't he the, the guy with the funny makeup from that Johnny Depp movie? Meaning Don Juan DeMarco, the psychiatrist. But yeah, it was nice seeing um, Brando out of the world that uh, had no one making a big deal about it. Uh, yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, I missed him dearly. I've always enjoyed him as an actor. And I remember, I think it was one of his last films, I think it was The Freshman where it was like the, yeah. the, that redo with the Godfather and it was a comedy. And I just remember enjoying that a lot. Cause you could tell he was having fun with the character, with the little, no, I mean, I don't know. It's it, 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 either he was having fun or he was acting really well. Like he was having fun, you know, it's, but it was just, it was nice to see a film that allowed him to do things instead of being um, boxed in. I think he was, he's a type of actor. You, 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 you you try to, you, as a director, I'm sure, you try to guide, but you don't want to box them in because that's when you lose the whole reason you bring them there is to act and to get those different um, points of view that you can either use or not use in your editing phase. But he's able to always bring something fresher to that type of script that you might not have saw or the script writer might not have saw. But then when you look at it, you're like, I like that take. We can go, we can put it in. Yeah, and I mean that's really the essence, I guess, of a true film star as well. And I also think that Nick Cage had some of that magic. And, um, in a way, um, working with Nick on Color Out of Space was similar to um, how I'd like to have um, worked with Brando. And um, was you know, very very happy with the the way all that fell together. And that um, there's few folk who have actually got that. Um, that, that, that crazy element of magic and the the ability to um, to turn it on and turn it off like that. I mean, um, what I noticed with um, working with Nick was that um, we worked so much faster than I ever thought we could. 
um, everyone on the on the crew were so much more on point when um, we came on set because it was a star. So everyone was trying real hard. And, um, Nick was such a, would, would give it all on the on, on the first take, and um, then um, usually by take two or take three we had it. Um, we, you know, usually we would have to adjust to what he was doing. So um, we'd miss, we'd muff it slightly on the first take. Something unexpected would happen, and we wouldn't quite be there. But usually by um, take two, everyone, if everyone on point, we, we, we were able to get it. Um, the energy levels meant that all the other cast members were uh, totally at the top of their game. And um, I found we were flying through the script of the schedule as, a, uh, as an uncanny rate. We, I think we finished the whole movie one day ahead of, sh- of schedule. Which um, to to me is the um, yeah the, the hallmark of a true star. I, I was yeah um, it, it, it just call, it, it elevated the, um, everyone's game. And I, I agree with you. I think and also shows the professionalism he has coming in because he he, he knew what he was going to do, how he's going to handle it, work with you, work with the other actors, and and to try to put the best work out there that he can. And and you know he's not he's not mailing it in, which is you know, um, shows you that he really cares about what he's doing. Yeah, I, I, I was, I think, you know, after everything I had been through on Moreau, um, I can definitely say that um, Nick Cage restored my faith in Hollywood. Um, so that was a, an absolutely delightful experience and um, filled, filled with uh, an, an awesome amount of pleasure. And, um, there are so many moments when... Um, and I'm sure this would have been the same um, working with um, Brando had I been allowed to stay behind the um, the monitor. But um, there were so many moments when um, things would take off as a sort of um, slight um, left of field pitch where you expected it to go. And uh, it's, um, Nick would make a, cho- a different choice in the course of the scene. And I recall my first AD looking at me out of the corner of my eye, the eye going, you, you, is it okay with this? And <laughs> like, just let, let, let it roll. That evolved somewhere else but, uh, in the middle of one argument with Jolie. Um, she says, you were right. And Nick's, uh, there was a version where Nick's like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. Look, I'm, I, I, and, he's, and he starts doing headstands. Uh, stands in his head and then plays the second half of the scene upside down, um, um, which um, is, we didn't use in the movie ultimately. But when um, Nick did the headstand, I recall um, you feel so these days um, when you're shooting, um, everyone else can see what you're seeing because you're on the, it's digital now rather than 35 millimeters. So we don't have to go to the lab and get the rushes two days later. Instead, as it happens, the digital feed is also going back to um, the people in the production office. It's also going back presumably to some of the film's backers. And for um, any number of people you don't even know about are actually watching your feed. So um, the moment the thing deviates from script, you go off script or off structure as such. Uh, the lead actor does dubs, dubs his head halfway through the scene. You can feel these tremors in the background of the set. <laughs> uh, you, you, you can feel somebody close the door in the production office, like a few hundred yards away. And gradually the, the sense of tension builds up until finally a runner or someone puts their head around the door of the set to see if everything's okay. <laughs> 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 Yeah, it's a, I like it like that. It's, it's a, it, 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 I think it's just something that elevates the material tremendously. And they, most people will know that, that um, if you um, shoot the script and you shoot the storyboards and absolutely bang on script and bang on storyboard, that you're going to end up with something which is beautiful but effectively dead. 
and lifeless that you know you have you have to plan the hell out of it and know every inch of it, but then still be prepared to take a step back and blast it with a shotgun or set it on fire when you actually shoot it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a, I, this has been it's been a, it's been a really nice conversation with you. Um, I, I've really enjoyed. It. I'm going to thank you again for taking time to um, allow me to talk to you about movies that you enjoyed growing up, movies that influenced you and, and the movies that we brought up that you've done. I mean, I, I, I think um, listeners will really enjoy this conversation. Oh, thank you, sir. No, me too. It's an uh, absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you again. And listeners, um, stay tuned for our next episode, which will either be a movie review decided by the roll of a die or another interview. Um, hope you guys have a good day. Bye. Hello again, everybody. I hope everybody enjoyed the first half of the interview um we're gonna ha- we're having a brief little intermission and i was thinking what better thing to play during an intermission than a show that i'm going to be on later this month the classic cars club podcast when they're doing their drive-in feature and of course there's intermissions and drive-ins and i show up on their show when they're in one of their intermissions between movies to talk about one of the movies that are on their show and i thought what better thing to do than play their promo so after the promo we'll go into the second part enjoy Hi, I'm Jeff Owens. And I'm Richard Chamberlain. And we want you to join our club, the Classic Horrors Club. Every month, Richard and I host the Classic Horrors Club podcast, where we talk about our favorite subject, horror movies. Some of them are classics. We all go a little mad sometimes. And some definitely aren't. What you see is real. What's done is done, and what I've done is right. It's the work of science. But we love them all the same. We also have special theme months where we highlight the legendary stars. And we head to the drive-ins of the past every summer for exciting double and triple features. Hi, I'm Chili Dilly, the personality pickle. And we even have occasional guests. My obsession, and it is truly an obsession, I suppose, of Frankenstein the True Story dates back to when it first aired in two parts on NBC in 1973. So join the fun and listen to the Classic Horrors Club podcast today. Hosted by SoundCloud, we're available wherever fine podcasts are found. And for even more fun, check out the video companion on our YouTube channel. And remember, we sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Hello, everybody. I'm back with Richard Stanley. And um, the interview you just heard prior to this took place about uh, 14 months before this interview. Um, well, we're following up on some other things that Mr. Stanley has done and what's been going on in his life um, since that interview. How are you doing today, Mr. Stanley? Now, doing very well, sir. I'm pretty much in my favorite place on the planet, which is in the French Pyrenees, right in the heart of the great natural pentagram, which I've made my home. It's summertime here. It's June. All the woods are in full verdure. I've just been swimming in the river all day, and I'm very much in love and, um, yeah, enjoying um, one of the last um, relatively unspoiled pieces of wilderness left on this planet. So I believe about 40% of the planet's been um, pretty much degraded by heavy industry by now, so I'm super lucky to still be in a place where I can actually drink the water I'm swimming in, and it's a blessing. That is a blessing, and if I understand reading correctly, you helped um, fight for that to stay the way it is because there, there was somebody wanted to make a development and make it like a resort or something. And you fought against that. 
Yeah, I've actually fought a succession of battles against it. Uh, there have been at least four different wars over the place during my tenure. I mean, first it was an American cult that tried to take over the thing, a bunch of Magdalenians. Then once we got rid of the Magdalenians, it was a, a theme park initiative led by our very own Trump, a plutocrat who came out of the Toulousian-based Airbus industry, tried to turn it into a theme park which was the sort of Jurassic Park um, version. And then we had to fight the theme park initiative for about about six years. And once we got rid of the theme park, we thought, okay, now we're going to be okay. And we managed to get the um, to get Montsegur, the, um, the central um, um, heretic citadel at the middle of this whole mess, um, shortlisted as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. But then UNESCO was effectively bankrupted under the Trump regime. Um, the trickle-down economy got cut off, and um, the mineral rights to the mountain got taken by a mining company, by a subsidiary of Rio Tinto. Uh, we, we were then faced with the equivalent of um, dealing with the Harkonnens, which um, was uh, one hell of a thing. And um, that, that battle went all the way to the European High Court. And I'm pleased to say that... Um, the, the Imrus group, who are searching for um, vast deposits of a hitherto unidentified mineral element known as Imrus HARG, which is a soft white stone substance found underneath the Holy Mountain in a plot development taken straight out of yeah, Dune, Avatar, or Hodorowski's Meter Baron saga, um, has now ground to a halt after the High Court action. So um, there's, be, there's been a um, cessation of hostilities with the mining company. And um, we're cautiously coming out of the trenches. But I think everyone on this planet probably has to fight tooth and nail to hold on to whatever's left of it, because um, there's always something coming. I'm sure you know, the week after next, there's going to be some other existential threat wheeling in. So um, there's no point um, feeling too relaxed about it. Uh, I figure so long as one's got anything that's worth having, there's always going to be some corporate power or something out there which is going to try and get it. So um, <laughs> it's just... The way it is, but yeah, fortunately for now, we're still in the place where there's fresh water sources that you can actually you know, um, drink straight from the earth, and um, there's still wild forest, there's still a reasonable biodiversity going on, and there's a, there's an odds on chance that we could survive here if um, the outside world went offline, which is the um, yeah, the way I like it. And um, I guess um, I'm going to um, dig in my heels and continue to. Um, protect the mountain and try and conserve the forest so long as I'm around, which um, <clears throat> hopefully will be a while yet. I hope so, too. And I know um, I live in a rural part of Maryland, and uh, we have different people that try to do developments, and we have um, a lot of the community that will do um, different things to stop them in the courts and that kind of stuff to try to keep it from being overdeveloped and just and, and keep it the way it is as much as possible. So I know I'm... I, I can commiserate with your fight. It's, it's, it's a constant battle because people, especially when you have mineral rights involved, people just want to get that money and they don't really care about the end result. Yeah, well, fracking and mountaintop mining, I think, are two of the biggest dangers to our water table. I mean, it's not a coincidence that um, the most sympathetic character in Color Out of Space is a hydrologist. But I think that... Um, conserving the water is going to be the biggest challenge for um, the next part of our century in that um, it's so easy to blow the whole thing. I mean, the the mountaintop mining company we've been up against out here um, 
basically, had they succeeded, would have um, pretty much contaminated the the entire river system from the top down. And that's, um, it's super tricky when people are mining at high altitudes like that because it really it really trickles down throughout the entire ecosystem. And um, if you're going to try and um, hang on to the place, you've got to try and start, basically stop it at source. Oh, I agree. I agree. And um, as I used to work for an organization called Clean Water or uh, Clean Water Action back when I was in college, you know, through those years, and uh, you have to fight things. Especially because if you lose your drinking water, you lose everything. And because that's just basically the, the you know, how you're going to eat, how you're going to drink, it all go it all go downhill. Yeah, and that makes it, it, the idea. I think though is the system tries to make you dependent on the tap water, uh, just like you've got to be dependent on the electric lights and increasingly dependent on digital technology, and um, just like cash money is kind of disappearing as they force everyone to basically use credit cards. So. Everything can be switched off at source. Um, I, I far prefer a world where we're, we're self-sufficient enough to get by without having to be um, yeah, part of the, um, the Uber grid. But I think that's, you know, corporate thinking is the other way around. Um, they constantly want to wire everyone in and force everyone to have to um, basically get their water from the same tap. Oh, I agree. I agree. And it's just and some people can see it and some people don't and some people don't care. And it's just it's just sad. Um, when we talked earlier, we talked about all your feature films and how you grew up in South Africa and how you got started. But I think the one thing we really didn't talk too much about was your rites of passage movie, um, you know, which got you your start. I don't think we really talked too much about that. So if you can shed some light on rites of passage. Well, rites of passage is very aptly named because it's really the first movie that I made. The original Rites of Passage was about um, 15 minutes long. Um, it was shot on Super 8. And um, basically, we borrowed the camera equipment from the, uh, the one film class that was around. Um, back in South Africa in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, there really was no formal um, film education. So we managed to basically beg, borrow, and scrounge the, the equipment. And then I cut um, one class um, pretty much every week, um, the last class of the day, which was usually anthropology, and it was something that I was strong on anyway. So I would, I would cut a class and head up the mountain with my buddy Greg, who was working on the camera. And we literally shot that thing about um, one, one or two shots a week for about a year. Um, couldn't convince anyone else to get involved in it because it was, yeah, pretty much um, the first thing I'd ever done. So I had to play the um, the lead character as well. I I was forced to play the um, the caveman in the lead of the movie. It's a reincarnation movie. Um, it's meant to be a sort of a day in the life or a day in the death of a unidentified hunter gatherer caveman um, back in Neolithic times who struggles to climb a mountain and then essentially reaches the top of the mountain and is eaten by a, a rather unconvincing rubber bear. It was meant to be a rail bear, but we couldn't we couldn't actually get a bear. So it's a rubber bear, and it's, I think, one of the places where rights kind of falls down. I wish the bear were better. But um, the concept's strong. Um, it's narrated by a suicide note left by a, um, a 20th century office worker who has remembered his part, all of his past lives and, and realizes that his... Um, his life is essentially insignificant. I was, an, I was a teenager at the time. I was 15, so I had a, a pretty typically um, teenage um, 
gloomy view of the world. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, the office worker character commits suicide, and in the final sequence, it's implied that he's um, reincarnated as a, a fetus artificially cultured in some kind of insane laboratory in the far future. Um, but at the same time, I guess the fetus in the laboratory is kind of a uh, a metaphor for um, how I imagined humankind were at the, the mercy of whatever unknown gods placed us on this planet. And yeah, we, we shot it um, very slowly over a period of about a year, then cut 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 it together. Um, the initial burst was about 15 minutes. I showed it to the one film tutor at the, the extracurricular workshop where we'd borrowed the equipment from, who, who was a guy named John Hill. And he freaked the fuck out, completely freaked out, um, expelled us from the class, um, confiscated the film, and alerted the authorities and alerted our parents as to what we had done, and um, then tried to suppress the film. Um, it took about a year for me to um, steal back enough footage to cut it back together again. It, the, the, um, the, the recut version were assembled out of what we could get back is about 12 minutes, so it's about three minutes we never found. And um, the soundtrack was pretty much lost. So, yeah, we recut a 12-minute version, which was which is cut to, um, yeah, Giorgio Moroder music from Cat People, um, the original soundtrack completely lost. And, um, yeah, then um, submitted it to a bunch of different um, festivals, and it ended up um, winning some student film trophy at, uh, in London of all places, um, and um, at the, um, yeah, I think it's the, it was the IAC Student Film Trophy. It was up against work from regular film schools, from the National Film School in Beaconsfield and from UCLA and University of yeah, California, Los Angeles. So I figured that um, I was in with a chance. Um, by the time the um, Rites of Passage won the Student Film Trophy, I'd already been drafted into the South African Army. It was about a year later, and I'd already deserted the South African Army, so I was already on the run from the military police and in no position to accept the trophy. So um, John Hill, the um, guy from the original film class, flew to London and accepted the trophy on our behalf. And then on the back of the win of the, of the International Student Film Trophy, he managed to draw down um, government funding to actually found the Cape Town Film and Video School, the first film school in, um, on the subcontinent, which um, really happened as a result of the um, Student Film Trophy being won. And, um, it gave um, yeah, John the edge to get the funding that he, was, that he was looking for. It took me about a year to steal the thing back again. Uh, so of course, Super 8 is the negative. So there's only, there was only ever one copy. And um, after it won the award, trying to steal the print back again was um, was, was doubly tricky. And I eventually managed to um, befriend um, the editor, girl who the, um, the star editor from the um, the film school, who was um, uh, who I, I took about six months befriending, and I waited until they were cutting together a showreel of the um, Academy's best to greatest hits to um, show to a bunch of the, um, the glitterati at um, the University of Cape Town. And um, while I distracted Justin, the editor, I managed to spool off rites of passage onto a take-up reel that I brought with me. 
and um, left behind a black and white silent porn movie that fallen into my possession uh, to, to, yeah, to basically make up the gash and took rights back and, and left. And I, I don't know what happened because no one ever told me, but um, I can't imagine that anyone actually sat down and checked through all of that Super 8 again before they projected it to the people at the Academy. And, um, but which yeah was the uh, the gestation of rites of passage, but um, just the sheer fact that it won the trophy even in its mangled state um, meant that it um, gave me hope and um, gave me the impetus to um, to start looking for more work to go back to um, to London and to the outside world um, somewhere outside of the apartheid era police state of South Africa where it might be possible to actually um, do creative work and. Um, get some more things rolling and and ultimately that translated into um managing to get music video work in um in 80s london that is fascinating about how you had to go pilfer your own movie back so to speak so i don't know if it's really pilfering when it's already yours i mean it's just you had to reacquire it not once but twice yes. <laughs> not once but twice right it's a passage yeah it's a real mess uh, you, even today, it's very hard to actually get a decent transfer of that. I've, uh, I need to actually try and um, make some more dubs available of it because um, it may still be, uh, if not the best thing I've done, at least one of the most direct things I've done because um, really when you're starting out, you don't know what you're doing. So um, it comes from the heart in a, a weird way that um, yeah, it's difficult to reproduce thereafter. And I guess uh, for whatever reason, it landed hard and gave me an insight as to what to expect in the, um, in the industry and in the years to come. That is true. I mean, that's true. Cause you, you, I wish I could see it. I haven't seen rites of passage, you know, I just know it from what I read and that kind of stuff. And it was just, but it sounds like the story of the movie, what happened after the movie sounds like it could be a documentary <laughs> you could do and, and put out there. Cause you know, reacquiring it and getting the other stuff back, especially if you can find out if they did show, the, the, the footage that you spliced in at the thing, you know, if you could find that out from sources and that'd be, that'd be just like the, the comment, the, like the, the, the end comment, the end laugh part would be, you got your last Way, laugh. Well, I, I suspect that that actually happened because none of the folk connected with the Cape Town Film and Video School, formerly the Young Filmmakers Workshop than the Cape Town Film and Video School ever spoke to me again. Uh, there was always a, a, a great deal of hatred and antipathy. Um, and John, the, 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 the actual founder, the guy I had to steal it back from, literally kept that up to his deathbed. Um, yeah, um, years later, I was around when he was actually dying um, off screen, and um, John still refused to speak to me um, right to the very end. So I, I imagine that they probably did screen the... Um, the, the the black and white silent um, porn film uh, cut in for gash and um, it didn't seem that way <laughs> I wonder how much of that footage went on before they finally got up there and stopped it you know stop the projector <laughs> that yeah, would be fun. Them were the days now speaking of documentaries you've done quite a few of them and um, uh, one of them I wanted to talk about was the secret glory about Otto Rahn. That was that was interesting. I got to watch that. I it was um, I thought it was fascinating because I didn't know anything about um Otto Ron until you know watching the movie and that kind of thing about how um, Nazis involved with um, your area of France and um, the cults and all this other stuff. It was really it was really fascinating. 
Yeah, um, well, The Secret Glory, to give it its full um, title, um, the, the Secret Glory of SS Obersturmführer Otto Wilhelm Rahn. I wanted to give it a long title, like a Fassbinder movie. Um, so um, that's where we ended up. Um, really did change my life in um, a lot of ways. I mean, um, it basically started out at the behest of um, Channel 4 Television's religion department, who hired me on as a researcher to um, research the backstory to Raiders of the Lost Ark. It had a hit documentary called The Real Jurassic Park about extracting dinosaur DNA from amber, and they were wondering if they could do the same thing with um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So um, I initially got a cushy job for Channel 4 Television as a researcher. Who sent, they sent me to Europe to basically see if I could find any members of the, the, of the SS archaeological unit for any members of the Arnonova SS who were still alive and prepared to talk to British television was pretty much the brief I was sent to Europe with. Along the way, I found out that there really wasn't a, a Nazi arc story. Uh, I couldn't give Channel 4 television that. But I found there was a Nazi grail story. And then the more I dug into the Nazi grail story, the more interesting it got. Um, the more I realized that, that it was a, truly a story that I'd never heard before, and which hadn't properly been documented. And it, it wasn't a story that ticked any of the right boxes for Channel 4 television or anyone else. It's a, 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 a complex story because um, Otto Rahm, the grail hunter in the middle of it, manages to be um, an SS officer, yet he's also got a Jewish mother and has Jewish roots. He's also gay. And um, he, technically, he's not a Nazi. He refuses to join the Nazi party, doesn't have a party number, and never has a party pin. So one has to face the notion of a, 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 a Jewish SS officer who is not a Nazi, uh, but who is brought in to um, try and yeah, find the grail. Um, to um, Otto's eternal credit, um, from the time of Reichskristallnacht onwards, he is uh, shocked and appalled by what happens in Germany and writes countless letters to Himmler and to the the upper echelons of the SS complaining about what's going on in the camps and um, saying that this is going to be a fucking disaster for the SS, for Germany, for all of us if you go on this way. So um, Otto clearly, were, um, although an SS officer was not a, a your typical Nazi, and um, made a series of choices which ultimately doomed him in that um, by, the, by 1939, he was basically a, a walking dead man. Um, he chose to commit suicide by um, literally getting off the bus at um, a, a place called Zoll on the German-French border, climbing a mountain and taking a bunch of sleeping pills and freezing to death, which um, really was the, the best way out for Otto. Very few people noticed or knew about it because World War II had just broken out and there were much bigger things going on all around. And um, after the war, thanks to um, Otto's association with the SS, his work was effectively damned, um, subject to um, all the, the norms of cancel culture, um, Nazi research, and yeah, wasn't um, touched or um, translated until um, I came along um, in um, 1998 and started asking questions. Um, at that point in time, there were various folk who believed that Otto was still alive. It took us a while to establish whether he was truly dead and whether the guy who died on the mountain and who was buried in Darmstadt actually was Otto or not. And um, we also managed to find about um, 20 of his um, former friends and family members 
um, different first-hand um, witnesses and interviewees who are most of the time telling the story to um, to camera pretty much for the first time. Much of it was, yeah, oral testimony, So, but first-hand oral testimony. So, um, yeah, it's a... It's a it's a crazy story. In the course of following Otto's tracks, I went to um, as many of the places that he wrote about as possible. And in the course of doing that, I came here to the French Pyrenees and came to um, to Montsegur for the first time. Otto introduced me to the the place to become my home. So um, in that respect, he's he's exerted a strong influence on my life and um, yeah, opened my eyes to a. Um, a side of Europe that I had never imagined before. Uh, so, um, yeah, Secret Glory is, um, I guess, um, a testimony to that. Um, in a way, it's the first part of what I imagine is going to be a trilogy because um, The Other World, the a documentary made a number of years later, pretty much picks up the pieces from the tail end of um, Secret Glory and um, continues to, um, to document what happened next. And I'm pleased to say there will be another feature-length documentary landing at the end of this year, which um, brings um, the story pretty much up to 2022. And um, also, um, the, um, the full research, the entire um, Ram Montsegur story and everything I know about it is going to be published in both hardback and softback before the end of summer. Um, it's currently called um, The Last Crusade of Otto Wilhelm Rahn. Um, and, um, yeah, it's about um, 500 pages of, um, of material, um, not just all of the original interviews, but everything that I found out about um, both um, Otto's quest and the castle about Montsegur in the course of these last um, 32 years is pretty much um, packed between the covers. I wanted um, folk who came after me to have um, reasonable access to the to the primary data of the first-hand documents so they could um, use it as a starter kit for um, their own misadventures. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the, the third part because I did watch The Other World also, and uh, that, w- that was interesting because you're getting a whole bunch of different people's perspectives of what drew them in to where you are at now. And it's, uh, it's interesting to hear all the different stories and to, and to hear more about the, the land. Yeah, it brings it up to date. And um, secret, um, the other world also assumes that people already know what's um, happened in Secret Glory. There's casual references to Otto Rahn and the, um, geogra- <clears throat> the geometric outline of the castle, which aren't explained within um, Otherworld, but do make more sense if one's seen the, the earlier documentary. And, um, yeah, the, um, these days, Otherworld acts as a sort of um, scary um, precursor to all the nightmares that came afterwards because... Um, one of the sad things about it is I think um, there's only one person left alive now from Secret Glory. Um, Hans-Jürgen Langer, the Reich historian, is still alive. But every single one of the others is dead. And um, of um, Otherworld, I think there's only um, three of us left standing. And that was only from um, from 2012. But... Um, just ghastly things happened to um, a large number of the, um, the the folk involved in the other world. 
So I, I definitely see it as a um, a, a, a kind of a, a precursor, a foreshadowing of um, what was what was about to happen. That, that is true. And one thing we talked a little tiny bit about in the earlier interview with you doing the um, the island of Doctor Moreau, and we talked about you working with Marlon Brando and like you know you met with him and all that stuff. I know The Lost Soul, The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau. Nice long title. <laughs> and, I, and I've watched that, and it is amazing. Because you like what you went through, because you got the film like about a week's worth, and then they released you, fired you, whatever you want to call it. it, it is that true? You did not leave the area? You stayed in the area and kept coming back and just to see what was going on? Um, pretty much. I mean, in reality, it was more complex. I tried to escape. I got as far as Sydney, then um, different problems drew me back up again, and I had to um, go back to far north Queensland. Um, the company involved, which in this case was New Line and its parent company, Time Warner, um, believed that I was trying to sabotage the movie and that um, I had formed a, um, an Aboriginal army that was going to attack the set. So people advised to me that um, that it was too dangerous for me to stay in Cairns or to or, or to or to stay or, or to stay in the town, and I should just get out of town and um, stay as far away as possible. Uh, in a deeply paranoid state, I remember myself and my then girlfriend um, drove frantically away from Cairns and away away from the movie and um, broke down to Helengon in the middle of nowhere in the rainforest and. Um, Ended up stuck out in the rainforest. We didn't. We had enough money that we didn't need anything. And, um, really, um, it didn't take long before we found ourselves um, pretty much taken in by the tribal and feral people that were out there. And the idea came to me that maybe I should organise them to attack the set. It was which we never quite did. I, I, I went back on set disguised as uh, as, as a dog person. But it became very apparent once I was back on set that the movie itself was in such a state of aimless chaos uh, 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 that there was no malice necessary. I mean, in reality, I only had to wear the dog mask for a few hours because um, nobody knew what was going on. They, uh, very quickly, I found I could simply take off the dog mask and was sitting um, um, talking bullshit or playing cards with Bill Hootkins and... Um, Ron Perlman and the folk, the folk who actually knew what was going on or knew that I was there. Uh, the rest of the crew had all been fired and replaced, so none of, none of them knew who the heck I was. I'd never met John Frankenheimer or Billy Fraker, who had brought his own crew with him, so none of them knew who I was anyway. So I was able to essentially sit on the sidelines and watch what was happening. And um, <laughs> yeah, it was a, a surreal, macabre experience. I've interviewed Ron Perlman before. I never asked him about the island of Dr. Moreau, but so you and him were, were chit-chatting during the shoot and people didn't know that was you, but I mean, some people did, but I mean, but you two guys were talking. Yeah. Ron, Ron was one of the, was always one of the good guys. And, um, well, um, Ron was always solid. And I'd, I would have to like, yeah, cover up when, um, <clears throat> when Val was around and, um, Mr. Brando knew about it too. He was also in on in a joke. He was aware that I was on set. I just, I just find it funny. You know, it's just like they know you're there, and, and 
and I could just imagine Ron just saying that this is a, this is a shit show, you know, and because he, he took the movie, I'm assuming to work with Brando and to work with you. And then everything's gone to hell in a handbasket. So it's, I can imagine, I have to ask him about it. Cause I know, I know Ron d- doesn't hold back. <laughs> he tells, he tells it as it is. Yeah. And um, he was going through a terrible time. I was, which is why I was sitting with him because, um, he had, he had a, a very extensive makeup appliance that he had to go under for, um, the sale of the law. So I was stuck in the chair for hours and hours every day. And then, um, nine times out of 10, they wouldn't shoot on him. Uh, Bill, who was the grizzly bear man, um, was also going through a massive uh, makeup appliances every morning. And Bill is, Bill's shoulder appears once in the fucking movie. Um, Bill's, Bill never appears squarely in the finished film, never. Um, but they, um, day after day, had to go through the, um, the, the entire um, makeup ordeal and then sit in the Australian sun or a, a, um, waiting around day after day to be shot, which is why, which never, almost never happened, given the state of full chaos that was, um, the, the film was locked in. So, which is why I felt um, a, a good deal of sympathy with them and um, didn't feel uh, that I should be off um, uh, surfing or. Um, yeah, um, swimming, swimming in the river while everyone was um, trapped in the middle of um, the the macabre ordeal of um, the island of Dr. Moreau, which was yeah um, full of um, <clears throat> twists and turns. I do hope to try and um, get a first-person account of that story out because um, Lost Souls really stole the um, the tip of the iceberg. I, I think there's a a, a a much crazier, deeper, um, darker. Conradian narrative embedded within that, that whole fiasco, which um, still hasn't been fully told. <laughs> I would love to hear, it, and I think I think you just um, whetted listeners' appetites for it, you know, so we'd get an idea of some of the stuff that's going on because it's, I mean, Lost Souls, like, I, like you said, told some stuff, but yeah, you're going even deeper, and then knowing certain actors were knowing you were there. That would just be interesting to get the to get, to get the insiders sort of perspective of what the heck was going down and that it was just all going to hell in a handbasket again. It's just uh, I know it was your dream project and uh, and just to see it crashing, you know, maybe one day you'll actually be able to tackle it again um, and and be able to do what you originally were planning to do. Yeah, I mean, no, it would have to evolve with the times a little. Um, but I sure, I sure wish that um, either I would get the chance or somebody else would um, take it on because um, Dr. Moreau still hasn't really been properly addressed. And, um, there's just so many huge issues within that story that um, I do hope someone gets to um, do it justice. But it does seem to be yeah, kind of a cursed project. I mean, the island's still there somewhere. I mean, it not only exists in the back of my head, but um, Graham Grace Walker, the um, the production designer of the Island of Dr. Moreau and production designer of George Miller's original Mad Max trilogy, um, built Dr. Moreau's compound so well that it's still there. Um, the rainforest is closed in around it, but overgrown within the rainforest is still the um, Moreau's compound from the 1995 version. Which, um, and um, the local tribal people are um, <clears throat> very um, Moreau-friendly because the whole fiasco injected millions into their economy and um, it changed things for them forever. So um, I would like to um, to go back and try and um, get it right next time. <clears throat> well, I hope you do. I hope you do. And um, 
you've had you've had um, an interesting time since our last talk. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about things that have been going on with you in the last um, fourteen months or two years, basically. It's some st- it was starting before we even did the interview. Yeah, well, I've got about um, ten minutes left on the clock here, so um, I can talk about it, but I'm going to have to talk about it in um, relatively limited terms. Essentially, um, my life and career was um, attacked by a um, consortium of individuals. It was an organized attack um, described by one hacker as a professional hit, um, which took place on on, um, March 16th, 2021. Um, It's something we've come to know as the 777 attack, because that's what... um, yeah, Miss Scarlett's blog. Um, Scarlett posted a blog accusing me of being a rapist, a wife beater, and um, seven kinds of monster. And um, this was deliberately promulgated throughout the web by a series of actual false news sites. A whole false magazine called Horrortainment News was created um, in order to source the uh, the initial reports. The initial reports were wildly um, insane. I was already like meant to be under arrest and on the run from the authorities. There were meant to be multiple charges. I was portrayed as some kind of, of roving killer. Um, the thing was deliberately timed to land at 10.30 a.m., 11 a.m. here, um, Pyrenees time on March 16th, um, 2021, because that was the 777th anniversary of the fall of Mexico, of the um, fall of the castle and the mass burning of the 250 heretics on um, the field of the stake. It was done that way to send us a sign um, to try to burn or destroy me on the anniversary of the castle's fall. Um, So um, since then, um, it's been an insane year. Um, I've been effectively uh, had all of my income streams cut off. Um, 99% of everyone that I'd ever had contact with um, cut ties with me. I was um, yeah left here in the um, the French Pyrenees. My bank account was hacked. My um, computer was hacked. Every, every single level of my life was hacked. But Yahoo, Gmail, Facebook, the whole thing. And um, yeah, since that point in time, um, I've um, settled in a little. I've found happiness and um, in the form of um, yeah an Occitan ind- um, indigent Lou. And I've been protected by the local folk here, and I've been protected by the um, French judicial system. And I can say that the um, Tribunal Judiciaire of Carcassonne, France, has found that I have no case to answer to. Moreover, a police investigation has been ordered into the circumstances surrounding the allegations made against me on March 16, 2021. Charges of harassment, defamation, and behavior having as its object or effect a degradation of working conditions which may infringe the rights to human dignity, health, sanity, and professional career have been brought against Tracy Robertson, a.k.a. Scarlett Amaris, and her principal enabler, Tonalise Rugas, a.k.a. Shelley Gonzalez, a.k.a. Horrortainment News, under France's Code Penal and Code Travail. Um, the tribunal also recommended the psychological examination of my accusers, the so-called witches, in the hope of better understanding their motives. Um, in this particular case, um, the word witch is not intended as a, as a pejorative, as my attackers identify as witches. Um, Tonal Lees claims to be um, a high-ranking member of the OTO, the Ordo Templi Orientis, 
Um, um, Tracy, a.k.a. Miss Scarlet's a member of something known as the Cult of Hecate, the Queen of Hell, that operates out of a shop known as the Crooked Path in Burbank. Um, but um, so yeah, both um, readily identify as witches. Um, both are fully aware of the timing of the attack and the um, true rationale behind it. And um, yeah, we've been out down here in Occitania, forced to rely on um, good old-fashioned um, witch hunting techniques, and um, have essentially been fighting um, the gossip with attestations and gathering um, witness testimony, and basically, um, yeah, building um, yeah irrefutable proof for um, denouncing and renunciating. Um, Scarlet's claims, but um, essentially now now we've got the charges, we need to get the convictions, and um, once we've got that, I have to go after the people who weaponize them, um, which goes all the way back to um, the forces in Hollywood that um, helped this happen. Um, under normal terms, um, um, Scarlet, a.k.a. Um, Tracy, actually wrote the, the same thing that she posted as a work of fiction and posted over a year previously uh, already on the Internet. Um, but nobody noticed. Um, it took some other folk to, to find the fictional account that Tracy had written and then um, have the idea of gussing it up and reposting it. But then there was the, the real genius was the way that they um, created the false news fronts and basically um, toggled the keywords and the search engines to make certain it got shared as widely as it was. And that wasn't the work of any disgruntled ex-girlfriend. That was um, a professional job. And... Um, essentially lurking beyond all this once we've been able to um, definitively um, <clears throat> establish the truth of what happened is we do have to go after the folk who weaponize them. It's um, something I frequently think of as the um, the Dracula plotline. I, I mean, I'm, I felt like a, a bit like Jonathan Harker in the mountains of Europe being attacked by the three vampire ladies or um, <clears throat> Quincy, who is forced to drive a stake through the heart of his ex-girlfriend, who's been who's come back from the grave and been sent against him. But that should not get in the way of the notion that it's not really their fault. The source of the evil is not the vampire ladies, it's Dracula, it's the thing that turned them. So um, the, even though, even if we um, we get the convictions, we, it still means having to go after the, um, the, the actual um, instigator of the attack, which um, will take me back to Hollywood. But um, I figure it's going to take probably um, six months to a year still to um, see this thing through to its cause. Um, there is a feature film version coming and that um, pretty much the entire um, saga has been committed to camera. Um, there was a crew shooting on, on the day on March 16, um, 2021. And they continued to shoot, and they shot all the way through to the um, confrontation last month in the High Court of the Witches at, in, in Carcassonne. And um, we hope that the completed feature film, shot in high-res and anamorphic, um, will be um, hitting the festival circuits um, this, this winter, this late autumn winter. The current cut's about 12 hours, and it obviously has to come down to about two hours. Um, but it covers a lot of a lot of ground. It includes the obviously the um, the death of the sorcerer Urani from Neef, the first movie, um, the um, potential murder of Tim Wallace Murphy, the Grail historian, the seven 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 attack on um, March sixteenth, and the entire rearguard action that's been fought since up to the um, 
yeah, the High Court hearing and the um, the current situation. So um, it's a, it's a crazy shit show. Um, but um, it's not a war that I chose to fight. Um, um, but it's not a war I can afford to lose. So I guess it's just I'm just gonna have to see it through. That's all you can do, and and um, is fight is the facts and evidence lead the way. And uh, what you talked about with the court finding that you had nothing to <coughs> nothing for you to be there for, and then they looked into it, and then they want to bring the other people in to answer for what they did, and then you know and move on from there. I mean, so it's this, this is not like a he said she said that we're looking at it in facts and evidence and what actually happened in court. So it's, it's, you know, it's moved, it's moved beyond to where um, people can say, well, he's saying this or she's, or they are saying that it's no, this is actually what the courts have looked into and have decided so far. Yeah. And the, the court has recommended a full police investigation, which I would trouble is that there's no actual fucking crime. Um, given that nobody's been raped, nobody's been murdered, and there is no actual crime other than the destruction of my life and career over the internet. So there's a limit to how much you can expect Interpol or the French police to do. They're not going to, like, um, grab witnesses from other countries. So, so it's okay. I would wish that um, the investigation would um, run deeper, but I can see that ultimately we're going to have to also be um, bringing a civil case against folk in the U.S., Exactly. And, um, and for people to follow along what's happening with your, your new films that are coming out and anything else, they can follow you on Facebook, but they can also go to your website, which is what the, um, the official richardstanley.com. I certainly can. So, yeah. And if you could link that to the, uh, to this interview, I'd be much obliged. Oh, I'll have it in the show notes and people can click right on it. But I'm going to have to love you and leave you soon. But what I do want to say is, in some respects, the whole 777 attack, which effectively um, wiped out my career, bankrupted me, and left most of the world thinking that I was a serial killer, a wife beater, or a rapist, um, has, however, done great things in my life. And then I should say I've never been happier than in the um, than in the last year. Um, I've fully fallen in love. Um, our medicine lady Lou is waiting downstairs, and so I'm gonna have to cut this to the um, the interview shortest so I can go out and um, yeah, make the most of the sunset. It's been a it's it's been a surprisingly good time. Sometimes to achieve freedom from the known, you truly have to have one's life blown to pieces and all of one's plans thrown up in the air to to actually yeah, um, re-engage with reality. Exactly. And I'm going to thank you again for taking time, you know, to um, go over this and that way um, but this, for listeners, this will tie in with the earlier interview and you'll get the pretty much a good understanding of uh, Mr. Stanley's career and what's been going on with him. And as he has new films, and everything come out, you're more than welcome to come back on. We can talk about your work as they're coming out. If you want me to. Uh, that would be a pleasure, sir. All right. But thanks again, sir. Well, you too. Take care out there. Um, keep your posters. Excellent. I hope everybody enjoyed the interview. And again, please leave us feedback at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com about this show or other shows that you've enjoyed. And it's always nice to hear back from people to get some constructive feedback of what they think has been going on with the show. You can also leave us feedback on our Facebook page, Diecast Movie Podcast. 
Uh, otherwise, we're going to end with a promo for Hammerama, the subsidiary show of Diecast, and uh, hope you guys are liking those episodes too. Have a good day and enjoy the rest of the summer. Bye. I'm Al from New Zealand. And I'm Stephen from Maryland, USA. We are Hammerama. Welcome to our new podcast, Enter Freely and of your own will. Part of the multi-award-nominated Diecast Movie Podcast, Hammerama is a wide look at the world of hammer horror from either side of the globe. Each month, we will throw a die to decide which category from the film vault of Hammer we are going to discuss. The Dracula, Frankenstein, or Mummy Cycles, science fiction, prehistory, or the experimental 1970s. We will cast our international eyes across, then and now, reviews of the movie. Its place in the Hammerverse. Our encounters with the stars. A film poster critique. And unusual associated merchandise. So join us for our bite-sized discussion of Hammer's gory glories, stitched together from both ends of the earth. Hammerama is a proud part of the Diecast Movie Podcast.